Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Just in time for the Academy Awards, this is our final episode of this year's Oscar series, and we're talking about original score. Let me introduce my guests. Mick Coogan, you're an LA-based composer who's written songs for a slew of well-known artists. You're also the singer and lead songwriter for the band Brett. Mick, good to see you again. Hey, Skid. And also with us again is Chris Malamphy, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Chris, welcome back. Always a pleasure, Skid. And in our final chair, returning to the show is Louis Weeks. Louis, you're also LA-based. You're a score composer with a bunch of film credits, and you co-wrote the score of NPR's Up First. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Skid. Well, I say let's just get into it. Five nominees for original score, which we'll discuss in alphabetical order by film title. Spoilers are possible. First on our list, The Five Bloods. Score composed by Terrence Blanchard. Yeah, I, I love listening to Terrence Blanchard's scores. Everything he does just makes me feel really like I'm in the hands of uh, just kind of a true genius. I felt like this was a really interesting film to showcase his work, both because the music that is into Five Bloods that he scored is so, it's can be really subtle at times and it can be really powerful at other times but also because it there's a lot of needle drop in the movie that uh the composer needed to navigate around which there's you know there's that marvin gay cue which comes back a couple of times there's some other notable moments of of needle drop licenses inside the film so that's kind of a unique situation for this score and i think that in the moments where the score really shines through, to me, it's really typical Blanchard genius. It's just really subtle, beautiful horn arrangements, amazing complex string parts. And then it has some sort of militaristic elements too, um, which fit for the film. I, I, what I think is interesting to me is there's less of this music than I thought there was gonna be in the movie because the needle drops played such a bigger part. Certainly less than, less music than there was in something like Black Klansman, which the mm -hmm. music was just really kind of like the crown jewel for me of that film. So yeah, I, I think very outstanding work. Uh, I wish there was more of it. Louis, I wanna be explicit. Uh, when you say needle drop, you mentioned it in passing, but it's the idea that there's actual licensed music in the movie and you have to, so the score works around that. Precisely. Yeah. You know, and, and Spike Lee's relationship with needle drop with licensed music is a really interesting one. Like I feel like we could do an entire podcast series about the way yeah. that he uses music. I mean, I'm thinking of something like he got game, which uses Copeland music throughout the entire piece. And it's just such a brilliant, use of, of licensed music. And then something like Black Klansman, which is scored 
you know, I think front and back, there might be a few licenses in it, but the score is so tailor-made by Terrence Blanchard to the piece. So Spike Lee has this way of navigating the, the huge environment of how to use music in a feature film. And sometimes it's all licensed, sometimes it's all composed. And in this case, it's, it's a little bit of both. I will say, I was really, I really liked all of the licensed pieces that were in this. And I was really happy to see that there wasn't Fortunate Son. <laughs> Because the most that, overused Vietnam era song exactly. of all time. Every single seemingly Vietnam War film uses right. that song. And it is it's just really great to not hear it in, in in this film. But of course, I mean, I think that we're dealing with a director who is so so knowledgeable and comes from a long tradition of musicians in his family and and that I just think he really knows how music works. And then there was that really interesting use of the ride of the Valkyries in the scene where uh, the main characters are riding up the river. And it really gives a complicated use of that piece, which that, you know, Alex Ross has this like amazing take on just like that one piece and, and how it's, complicated in film because of apocalypse now and but right. i think i think that it, that that just shows me that even when everything about the music in these movies uh that that spike lee makes it are just so thoughtful uh i just like terrence blanchard's music so much i always want more of it so that's that, that's my personal take on it yeah i would uh echo pretty much everything louis said i mean to me i'm most intrigued by the long relationship Terrence Blanchard has had with Spike Lee. If Wikipedia is to be believed, and I can't doubt this, it dates back to Jungle Fever in 1991. And to Louis's point about the interplay between needle drops, between you know licensed music and score, um, there are so many of these movies. Malcolm X is a big one. Uh, the 25th Hour, one of my favorites in the Spike Lee Irv, Crooklyn. These movies all have an interesting interplay between needle drops, which a guy like me, you know, give, doing what I do is, is what I'm likelier to notice. But I, you, you never don't notice the score in a Spike Lee joint. And I say that as a compliment. I suppose there's an extent to which score is supposed to compliment and not draw attention to itself. But Blanchard's music in Spike's films draws attention to itself in the best sense. I think of a movie like Malcolm X where so much of the story was shaped by that score or again, the 25th hour uh, or, or Crooklyn, these movies really, the score plays a very active role. And what I like about the score specifically in Defy of Bloods is it manages to sort of keep the lushness that um, Blanchard has employed before in films like Malcolm X but then it adds to Louis's point, this, this military edge and this, it complements the Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye was the big, you know, licensee of this film. You know, basically it's, it's it, the movie is practically an homage to what's going on. So you can see what's going on. And 
there's a soulfulness to Blanchard's work that complements what's going on uh, and makes it all sound of a piece while also playing off the military trope of, you know, a Vietnam War movie. So yeah, it's, it's fun to hear somebody whose work you're now familiar with from literally 30 years of Spike Lee movies trying something new and something different. And it's good that he's getting recognized for it. Yeah, it just really seems that Spike Lee has had his finger on the pulse for 30 years and is just in front of culture and just has such a, a keen awareness of, you know, Flight of the Valkyries. Any more movie you're going to put that in is going to really... Um, it's just going to immediately th throw the film into a new context. And so, I, and, and I wonder about for Terry Blanchard, like how it must be when you have a movie where really the big musical moments are the licensed songs where that's, that's what, that's what people are going to be like, Oh, that moment. Like for some of these other uh, films we're going to be talking about, I feel like the score is very distinct, but when you have such big moments by such huge licenses, how do you compete? And I feel like, Blanchard and Spike Lee found a groove where it complemented those big, huge, uh, dramatic pieces. And I feel like that was really cool. I, I, I was a little curious. I really liked some of the fight scenes in this movie. Um, very uh, intense battle scenes. And the score for me there was a little peculiar. I felt um, it didn't quite match. It, it, it was this beautiful string arrangement kind of in this militaristic, what you were talking about, Louis, this kind of militaristic string arrangement and full of, of suspense and things. But I think as we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years in Hollywood, that, that these fight scenes really usually go scoreless. There's not a lot of sound. There's like, you hear all of the, the, the background. So it, it was interesting choice. I, I don't know if, if, if you can speak to that. I really do think that uh, the music in this film and the, the work that Terrence Blanchard does to me always lets me know that he understands that the music is part of the filmmaking process rather than like the post-production process. When I say that, I mean, there's a lot of cues that made me feel like the music's job was to let us know that this scene was more emotionally complicated than it might be in another film. There are all these elements where a string part could sound particularly pastoral in any other film, but there's just an element of like complication that, that reminds the listener that this, there's a complicated element of like imperialism behind this idea of like these people in this beautiful landscape or even something like the militaristic stuff, you know, or the, it reminds you that these heroes they are going through something that's really complex and really complicated. And I think to your point, most films, especially where action is involved, it's, it's about geography. It's like, okay, we have to let people know what the tempo is and who's who and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And like this score kind of refuses to do that. And I think for the most part, it's also very willing to step back. Like the most tense scene for me in this film film was scored by cicadas it wasn't a score like this the the score stepped back and the sound design pushed the, the the kind of mechanical buzzing of the cicadas up to the absolute max and then it, the scene where they're all they've they've gotten their gold and they're wondering what 
are we going to do now? And then one of the characters kind of wanders off and steps on a landmine. And it's this horrific, shocking thing. And you realize that the whole time this has been going on, you're just hearing this insanely loud buzzing of cicadas. And then it stops. It, they haven't left the, the, the area, but this, the cicadas just stop. And, you know, I think that a, a seasoned composer, like, especially with the relationship uh, that Terrence Blanchard has with Spike Lee, they have a say in that. You know, they say like, I don't think there should be music here. You know, and, and that type of restraint, that is a choice that I think is a big part of what makes like really, really mature filmmaking work to me, you know? And, and there, there are lots of stories about that in, in, in film where composers just be like, cut it, take it out. We don't need it, you know? Um, so that was something that struck me about this film. I love having you guys break this stuff down. Whew, all right, let's move on to the next film. Second on our list is Mank, score composed by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. episode or these talks we've had together i tend to talk about the meta story and we might as well get this out of the way now the meta story of this year's best score race is the trent and atticus versus trent and atticus you know mano a mano fight basically we have two very different scores by trent Reznor of nine inch nails fame and atticus ross uh for mank and one we'll talk about in a few minutes soul and um you know, I'll say something I've said so many times. If you had told me back in 1994 when I was watching Trent Reznor stomp around and sing about the March of the Pigs, that this guy would be a multi-Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning uh, score composer someday, I might have said you were crazy. Uh, but here we are, and he's, what is this? Is this year's third and fourth nomination? Fifth? I've lost track. I think he got Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, he won for The Social Network. And... I don't know if we should do Mank and Soul back to back, but it is interesting to see the difference in the approach here. Um, what I like about um, this one, and I'll throw it over to the guys, is uh, I've probably watched Citizen Kane more than almost any movie except Goodfellas and maybe two or three other things. I know that score really well. And the ways that, that that track you just played, which is the lead off track of the score, echoes the score of Citizen Kane. You can practically hear the, the camera crawling along the floor, a la the opening scene of, you know, in uh, Xanadu in Citizen Kane. It's a pretty neat trick to evoke that 30s, 40s, specifically 1941, if you're talking about uh, Citizen Kane it's a neat trick to evoke that. And, um, and they've kind of pulled it off at least there. Um, and this is a, a very active score qua score. It's the, the score album I noticed has something like 42 tracks 
and some of them are very short pieces. So it's, it's lots of interstitial and, you know, um, incremental stuff, but, uh, when it's at its best, it's, it's very, it's enveloping and it's a kind of a neat trick. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a smart thing to say, but, uh, it, it, as a Citizen Kane fan, it, it resonated with me in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this score is a really, it's a really big accomplishment. You know, I think from a, from a musical perspective and probably thinking about their careers, this is gonna be a big deal in terms of the way that people think about um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I personally love the way this music sounds. I think it's really great to be referencing pretty idiomatic film music from an era that it's just not, it's really not a part of contemporary film scoring. It got me thinking about people like Henry Mancini mm -hmm. in a way that like, I think is, it's very cool in 2021 that we're like, it's, it's in the conversation, you know? And I think that it's really good too, just for the craft to have people like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross be able to do this. And they had a lot of help and I wanna talk about that, but I think it's really good just for the, the story of film composing in 2021 that people will go like, huh? You know, they did this? That's, that's shocking. And, and I think like, it shouldn't be shocking. Um, I think it, it's really good for, for the film scoring world when people are surprised by this because it shows that like really great composers are really great composers. And then a really huge part of the film scoring process is about putting together the right team. You know, like it seems like the bulk of the orchestration arrangements are credited to Conrad Pope, who's another film composer it strikes me that that's really, really important to talk about when you're talking about a film like this. Two composers who are in a different world than what they usually do, but they had the presence of mind and the, and the savvy to put the right team together. Film scoring is often talked about like a very solitary thing. Like the credit usually goes to one person, but it's one of the most collaborative aspects of the creative process. And a film like this just makes me realize even more so that like this whole team made this work. And I'm sure that Trent and Atticus were very much at the helm, but when you're dealing with idiomatic music from a bygone era, you're gonna need to, you're gonna need to reach into your Rolodex and you're gonna need to find the right people. And I just think that's really, it's a really good thing for the community to recognize. I agree and shows just such good vision on their part. And um, I, I loved this movie, the score. And I, and I disagree, Chris, I've been listening to Nine Inch Nails for 30 years. I love their work. It's, it's amazing body of work. But I remember in, I don't know, 97, they put out a double album called The Fragile, which to me was a big shift in the band's kind of evolution and where it became the sound, it became sound design. Like that album was just unbelievably well-conceived in it's in just its layering and textures. Like not nothing from, it's like the band stopped being an industrial band right there and started being something, it's in something else completely. And so 
what I love about this score and about all of his, all of, of Trent Reznor's melodies is there is a scale that he's been playing since pretty hate machine that <laughs> ends up in every single piece of his work. And, and Interesting. Louis, you might know, I, I don't have the technical, it is some, t- I don't know, Mixolydian. It is some scale that he plays these chord huh. structures that show up all the time. And I hear them in, in every one of these themes and it's just cool and it's dramatic and it's dark. And so when I see Mank in a, in a film completely about light and shadow and, and just Fincher's brilliant use of light in that movie and, and how this, this music just weaves through the story. And I, I think you're in to your point, Louis, that great composers are great composers. What I hear on Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile, I hear right now. And it is it is the same person, but it is an evolution and obviously when bringing in people that can do a song that can, uh, you know, like a Charleston dance. And they have such complicated uh, arrangements for these old uh, pieces in, in Mank. And it's just like, now these guys are operating at such a high level because they've been working so hard for 30 years and meeting so many people and just making such good choices. And so I, I really feel that this to me was my favorite score and um, very meaningful and just shows some masters at work. And I just think it's really cool. Well, back to, you know, the point about in Five Bloods, the relationship between director and composer is what allows for these types of risks, I think. Fincher and Reznor and Ross, this is not their first rodeo together. What is this, like the third or fourth time they work together? I think you're right. Yeah, I, we've got um, uh, Gone Girl, we've got Social Network, right? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And my understanding about the way that Fincher works is that oftentimes, and I think a lot of directors are this way, they'll use opportunities kind of commercial opportunities to experiment with, I really want to shoot, you know, in black and white. I really want to shoot with this. I want to do basically like extended uh, shooting tests, basically to like, I really would love to shoot this in film. You know, I really want to shoot with this aspect ratio. You know, musicians are the same way. Like I think people are always looking for excuses to dive into the stuff that really interests them. So I think that that spirit matches Fincher's too. This idea that like, okay, let's get into the old noir stuff. Like let's get into Herman. Let's get into Mancini. Let's get into this like a uniquely American tradition of film composing. I like it because it shows me that they're filmmakers just as much as Fincher is, because that to me is the mindset of filmmakers working in Hollywood who have relationships and big budgets. They have the they have the leverage to be able to say like, okay, I'm going to take all this money. I'm going to tell a great story, but I'm also going to like ex- experiment a little bit. And people trust them to do that. You know, Have you guys watched any of the episodes of Netflix's adaptation of Song Exploder, the podcast? No, big fan of the podcast though. I highly recommend an episode that by happenstance, this was good timing, about a week or two ago, I just watched, which is about Nine Inch Nails Hurt. And I thought of it immediately when Mick was pointing out these chords and this scale that keeps recurring in Trent's work, because there's something uncanny 
about the scale he works with on Hurt uh, and the, the creative process that went into that song. And that song is actually 94. That's at the end of uh, the downward spiral. So I totally agree with Mick actually that the fragile was like a, a before and after moment for what Nine Inch Nails were. But rather contradicting my point about, you know, I didn't hear it in 94. Well, if you were listening on Hurt, you could kind of hear the beginnings of this. So what impresses me most again, uh, and I was blanking on the name of the original Citizen Kane composer before, but to say his name, Bernard Herman, how could I forget? The ability to emulate the Bernard Herman style and yet put a very specific spin on it is, is truly impressive work. And it just shows uh, Ross and Reznor's versatility. Yeah. And, you know, I think they did something that I think a lot of composers are very wary of doing, which is a, a lot of people look at Bernard Herman's work and picked out elements of his approach mm-hmm. and said, I can work with that. There's a really good case to be made that someone like Hans Zimmer is a direct descendant of Bernard Herrmann, hmm. but in a, in a process way. There's a lot of elements of their process, the kind of churning, rhythmic, ticking clock kind of things, kind of uh, rhythmic cells, mo- melodic cells that kind of come from a, um, a minimalist place. But there's very few people that listen to Bernard Herrmann and have the task or like the desire to like, I'm going to try and sound like it um, because it's just such a hard thing to do. And, you know, if I had any criticism of the score, it would be that I think that while I love this type of music, it, I didn't really feel like it was in musically in dialogue with some of the commentary that the film was making. I think that there were moments of the film that it was very clear that this was a commentary on truth and like the responsibility of storytellers. And that was an added complication in the story, which is great. I didn't feel like the music had that added complication. It felt like really, really good homage. It felt like really, really good admiration of the music. And it was surprising and delightful that it came from these two composers but I didn't really get the sense that it was saying, you know what, we can, we can do this style and we can also have something really meaningful to say about it. I'm holding it up to an extremely high standard because I, like, I think that this is probably one of the better scores of the year, but if I had a criticism, that, that would be it. Well, that's of a piece with the criticism of the film itself, right? I mean, those who have not enjoyed Mank. Right. right. And I mean, let's not forget, we just were saying that Ross and Reznor and David Fincher have worked together a number of times. They're of a piece with each other, right? Because Fincher, Fincher is Mr. Obsessive. That's his shtick, right? You know, how many takes can I do? Yep. And, I, and on Mank in particular, we're going to use the same aspect ratio. We're going to make this look like it was shot in 1941. Yep. And there's an, this is what I meant in my original comment about, I, I, I enjoy this score a lot, but I don't know how much of this is me just getting off on, oh, isn't that cute and clever? Like they really, and it's better than that. But, I think that's I think that's fair, right? And there's the the the, the line on Mank also was well, that's very clever. You managed to make this look like an Orson Welles movie from 1941. Now, is does it work as a movie? I guess the um, argument could be made that that was Mank the char- the character's uh, conflict as well. You know, his cleverness was also the the thing that held him back 
there was a kind of unwillingness to engage in a way that scared him, you know, it may be to, in a way that would be seen as controversial. So, you know, it's possible that this is all for a reason, you know, that, that pastiche cleverness, a kind of detachment is the feature, not the bug, but it's also possible that it's the bug and, and not the feature. So well put. Chris, let's take your suggestion and actually jump ahead. We're going to break with our alphabetical order and let's talk next about soul. Score credit to Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, and John Baptiste. In this case, however, I'll play two selections from the film. First, a piece credited to Reznor and Ross. Peace credit to John Baptiste. Obviously, those two pieces of music you played, I suppose they could be, sound more different than each other, but they can't sound much more different from each other. This score has a split personality very intentionally, and there's tremendous mutual respect. You've seen it on the award circuit between Trent and Atticus and John Baptiste, now made famous to people. He, he's from a very storied New Orleans jazz family, but now he's made famous to people by being the band leader on Stephen Colbert's The Late Show they have great mutual respect for each other and they're sort of delighted to be working together. Uh, and I'll go out on a limb and say that out of the five in the category, whatever we, wherever we come out on these five scores, I have a hunch this might win, but it's a little bit like the movie itself in the sense that the movie is, is doing a couple of different things. It's this Fantasia that takes place in the afterworld and then back down on earth. And of course the protagonist is himself a jazz musician. What I find again, the meta story, right? The backstory of Soul is that it was going to be the umpteenth Pixar film. And, you know, Pixar operates at a high level, so it was going to probably be at least good. And then they realized, oh, wait, we're doing a film about, you know, an African-American jazz player. We need to bring in other people on this. And that's when they brought in Kemp Powers, who uh, is up for best screenplay this year for... Um, one Night in Miami, completely separately. He ended up getting a co-directing credit with, uh, I think it's Pete Doctor of uh, Pixar. And so much the way the film, you, you can see in the score, the two different things. There's something very Pixar-y about what Ross and Reznor have pulled off with their side of it. I would say it's less distinctive than the work we were just talking about with Mank. There's this, an extent to which some of the score I feel like could appear in any number of films, but it works here. But the John Baptiste stuff is vital uh, and it's, it's, it's essential. And you, you need that much the way the film needed to balance out the Pete Doctor sensibility and the Kemp Power sensibility. This score needs to balance the Reznor and Ross sensibility and the 
John Baptiste sensibility. And I haven't sat down and listened to this as an album. I must, I imagine it might be a somewhat schizoid um, experience, um, but within the context of the movie, I think it worked. I liked Soul a lot. I wouldn't say it's top tier, top shelf Pixar, but it's, it's a very good movie. And it's a movie about music. So music's very, very important to it. And uh, for that reason, I have a strong suspicion this is gonna win, but we'll see. Yeah, I think that again, like Mank, the strength of this score is the team that was assembled, which I hope, I hope, I hope that's the takeaway if this wins uh, because I think you're right. This is, this is definitely about putting the right people together. Even the people that consulted on this, it seems like they're really heavy players. And, um, and just the names I wrote down, we've got Dr. Peter Archer. Was, it seems like who the character was based off of. Dr. Johnetta Cole was involved. I just think it's really important. I think it's really important that the music is recognized as a team effort um, and not just the, the brainchild of one composer sitting alone under lamplight by themselves. You know, my thinking about this was I felt really, it was really emotional as a musician watching this and kind of seeing all the ways that you can depict what music means to people who play it. I felt like that's a trick that Pixar is very uniquely capable of doing in terms of making a very internal process feel very external, very visible to a less emotional extent. I think, you know, we saw it in Ratatouille when Remy takes a bite of cheese and, and the flavors start swirling around him. This is something that they've, they really understand that the, like the internal can be made external in a very creative way. I felt like, all of the parts of the score that I was disappointed with were probably the stuff that, that was related to the new age uh, synth stuff. And my disappointment with that is not because of how it sounded. I, I particularly love um, that tradition, but rather that I felt like there was an opportunity to show people the connection between jazz, improvised music and this world of new age uh, ambient music. Um, right now, what we're getting is a very kind of, uh, let me put it this way. The, the music that's in the great before, the, the kind of ethereal planes, the astral planes, is, has a complicated role in contemporary media because it's so tied up with technology. When I was watching those scenes, all I was thinking about was the fact that this was made in computers because what we're hearing is the sound of years and years of branding of aligning technology with a very specific type of synth new wave, synth ambient music. And I think that that really pulled me out of the story because it, it, it reminded me of Pixar the machine, Pixar the relationship with Apple, Pixar, the relationship to the vast server farms that it takes to make the, it just really, it, it placed the movie, it pulled me out of it and it made me realize that what I was looking at was computer animation. 
because the music that it was using is the music that is used in phone commercials. And it's the music that's used in computer commercials. And it's the music that's made on computers. And it's the music that is supposed to signify the, the magic of technology in, in contemporary life. And I felt like that was a missed opportunity because the goal I think was to signify a, a sense of spiritual transcendence, something, something fleeting, something ephemeral. But what we got left me with something that felt like an Apple store. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds harsh, but I, I really felt like there's so much other ways that they could done. I mean, I'm thinking about, there's just so many ways to do ambient music, so many ways to do, you know, new age music that is related to the music that our main character was playing when he was alive. There's, you know, Alice Coltrane, there's um, Ahmad Jamal, there's, there is, it's, it's linked in a tradition. And I thought that would have been a really cool way to bring it all together that like what's happening on the spiritual plane is not just kind of like a Juno synth <laughs> and like, you know, a, uh, a couple of arpeggiation, you know, arpeggiators, but, but it's related to the piano in a maybe a more roundabout way. I'm not sure if that makes total sense, but. Louis, it makes perfect sense to me. I like to go one step further. I just feel like the music in the afterworld wasn't that interesting. Like this is something that Trent Reznor, how many loops of a Jupiter arpeggio does that guy have in his library? A million, I don't know. And so it, it feels like that music, which was such like such in their wheelhouse, like such in their wheelhouse, I couldn't believe that it left, left me a little emotionally flat for that beautiful world they constructed. So cool, so imaginative and abstract, you know, and it was such a moment for them to really grab you with some a piece of work where, where you look, look at a person like the more ambient side of Hans Zimmer and some of the score from like Interstellar or something really worked in that space, you know? And if there could have been just some more thematic moments that could tie, like you said, the, the two worlds together. But it was so stark that it felt a little bit lazy to me. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure these was a zillion dollars spent on these type of things. But it's like, why just go for like ambient land when you have, on contrast, the first solo he plays during his audition. And you mentioned Ahmad Jamal and like Red Garland, these great jazz pianists. Stunning. That solo was insane. Like, and it was, what was cool about it, it's so accessible though for non-jazz listeners. Like it was so catchy and whimsical mm -hmm. and that, that's why it was so fun. And so not every, of course, 95% of Pixar kids and watching this movie are not jazz listeners. So that piece of music was so ingenious to me because it was so, uh, full of vitality but also so accessible at the same time and it's so freaking hard to do and so i give the the, the jazz music in that so much credit and shines so much brighter to me than than the electronic music which 
it was like a perfect time to somehow br bridge these two worlds. And maybe that was a thematic choice by everybody, uh, which is okay. But um, it left me a little bit, and, and, it, and, it, and it further affirmed my opinion of the movie where they're just like doing too much. There's like, there's just like, there's the buddy comedy, there's the inside out thing. It's like all these like Pixar things happening and it never falls into the one like Pixar lane where it's just a smash. Like we've seen so many of those and it just feels like, ah. Yeah, yeah, totally. The, it's an irony, right? I mean, I was gonna just say that's that's the word really. It's ironic that again, to invoke what I said the first time we talked about Reznor and Ross, what, what was his reputation around Pretty Hate Machine? Like he actually appeared on the cover of Spin Magazine as the godfather of industrial, right? He was Mr. Synthesizer, he was Mr. Electronic. It's ironic that the least interesting thing about this score is what Reznor is doing with electronics. There's even some stuff that echoes in other parts of the score, like when he goes down to earth, uh, that echoes sort of a techno pop vibe. And it's, again, it's fine, but it's, it's not exceptional. Whereas to go back to Mank, Mank is, is a pretty exceptional piece of work. And it's remarkable that it's coming from Reznor and Ross. That's the, that's the, the bigger shocker. And yet to repeat something I said earlier, I'm predicting, and maybe it's because of Jean-Baptiste and just how fantastic his half of the score is, this, this very well could take it. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got two more films on our list. We're going to double back. First up, Minari, score composed by Emile Mosseri. It's so good. I feel like Emil Mosseri would have done a fantastic job scoring the ethereal stuff <laughs> in Soul. Um, Great point. I'm a huge fan of the score, huge fan of Emil Mosseri's. The last black man in San, San Francisco is one of my favorite scores of like the decade. And it's just a phenomenal He's a phenomenal writer. I think what's so cool to me about his work is the relationship that it has with pop music. I don't think people who would listen to the score would immediately go, oh, that's pop music. But a lot of the chord progressions, a lot of the, the textural choices, just the structure, the relationship between accompaniment and how you would play these scores. I think a singer songwriter or a band might relate to more than like an orchestra would relate to it. And I think that that has a chamber feel to it that makes it really unique. Um, it's not a lot of music in Minari, but when it happens, it hits you and it's so good. The filmmaker leaves so much room for the music in such a gracious way. There's like a really, really solid understanding of like, you're gonna have a few moments and when it's your moment, it's your moment. There's actually a couple of things in this score that reminded me of Ennio Morricone. Oh, interesting. Um, the relationship between the, the vocals and the ensemble 
is a very Morricone move, uh, a kind of very high, distant soprano that's really following what the chords are doing rather than leading. And I have more to say about <laughs> Morricone and the next score we talk about, but I think in a, in a way his shadow is a part of this score. Very simple, you can fit it all on one lead sheet. It can be played by one instrument. That kind of Morricone uh, simplicity, but also sparseness and kind of devastating kind of intimacy, I think is a big part of this score for me. And I, I don't know when this was started, but Morricone has been on my mind for the last year ever since his passing last year. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was on the filmmakers' minds as well, just because I, I'm hearing quite a lot of, of echoes of, of it in the score. Give us a little more context there for folks who might not be familiar with Morricone's work. Maestro Morricone, uh, one of the most um, important people in contemporary film music. I mean, uh, basically, created the sound of the spaghetti western he uh did my favorite score which is the mission um which is uh not my favorite movie but definitely my favorite score and really kind of a a virtuoso of orchestral music but also had this really really cool understanding of the ways that pop music and like library music kind of like catalog music from like Italy in the 70s and 60s. He's a really kind of aficionado of pop culture, but also had really highbrow orchestral sensibilities. You've heard uh, Morricone's music. Um, if you, I think if you've ever seen a film, you would, uh, you would have heard his music. That's my guess. <laughs> I'm interested and I want to key into one thing uh, Louis said about um, there's not much music in Minari, but what there is is exceptional. I couldn't agree more. This might be my favorite score out of all of them as music to listen to. Like I would put this on as an album. It's beautiful. Uh, it works the way some of my favorite scores of the last 10 years, like Moonlight, for example, works. It just, it stands alone. But the thing that I wanted to key into is your point that it's, it's sparing. I mean, sparing is a way you could describe Minari as a film in general. Uh, and I say that as a very high compliment. It's not a movie that has any fat on it. It's a very lean movie to begin with. But as I was watching it, knowing that we were going to talk about scores in a couple of weeks, I, I recently... Uh, my wife and I had watched it and I'd fallen asleep uh, because I'd had a long day. And I said, this movie's too good for me to do that to it. I'm going to rewatch the whole thing. And this time I knew we were going to be talking. I knew it had been nominated and I knew it had gotten the score and I loved it. And I was remarking to myself, this score is brilliant, but there's not that much of it. And what's funny about our conversation and the direction it's taken, we've talked about the two Trent Reznor's and Atticus Ross's. We're now about to compare what I would call the least score with what I would call the most score when we get to news of the world. And uh, it's, it, it's such a study in contrast, but 
talk about making the most, I'm, I'm really just repeating what Louis said, but talk about making the most of your small moments. Because every time I heard score, when I was rewatching Minari, I, I was just blown away by the beauty and the grace of it and the simplicity. So yeah, anyway, exceptional music. And, and this composer, you, to your point that Last Black Man in San Francisco is one of your favorites, that's one of his first scores, correct me if I'm wrong. He's, he's quite young. Yep. He was born in 1985. I mean, and I can tell you just from conversations that I have with people in the industry, um, music supervisors, heads of department, filmmakers, uh, agents, uh, he is on everybody's tongue. Like his name is being, is just pinging around the industry right now. And I think it's probably a good bet that in the next couple of years, he is gonna pop in a major way. I mean, I, I think, you know, Moonlight is a really apt comparison. I, I think that he is in the same world as Nicholas Bertel in terms of there's a kind of romantic, sparse, piano-driven quality to his work, but very seem, seems very capable of pulling out the big guns when something like I don't know what whatever his succession will be, but I think he will get a chance to do something big and something really, really theme driven because everything that he does is is um, is really good. Yeah. Well, and it'll be interesting if he gets something big, because just looking at this filmography, it's an incredible filmography of all very personal small films like Last Black Man in San Francisco, Kajillionaire, the Miranda July film, mm -hmm. Minari, Lee mm -hmm. Isaac Chung's film, which could not be more personal, uh, the random acts of flyness on HBO. You know, somebody else who had that path and then went huge is Ludwig Göransson. Interesting. Ludwig Göransson's work was, you know, something like Fruitvale Station, like right. very intimate. And, you know, I like to think that it's possible for uh, talent to get s spotted no matter what they're doing. Um, my guess is that something big will come up, but you know what? These, these small chamber pieces are so remarkable that I just kind of like, if, if that's his path and that those are absolute gems that we're going to get to treasure. I mean, it, this, this score kind of reminded me of our conversation last year, Randy Newman's score for marriage story. And mm -hmm. that like, you know, there's a lot, of storytelling happening, not a lot of music, but the music that was there was just like, yeah, just spot just on. squeezing all of the emotion right out of it. So right. I, I think I think that in in a lot of ways they're very similar too. Well we'll compare this now with the last film on our list, News of the World, score composed by James Newton Howard. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that this is a gorgeous score. This is definitely contemporary movie music. Like we're dealing with somebody who has codified uh, the sound of what a, a big Western in 2021 would sound like, which is 
a strange thing, well, there are not really a lot of Westerns happening right now. Um, and the ones that are, they're secret robots like in Westworld. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, like Mank, it's an old school thing that these pros are, are reinterpreting today. I think that it's easy for me to immediately go to a place with the score where I'm like, this sounds pretty uninteresting. And it sounds a little bit uh, generic, but then I have to remind myself that this is something that, um, this is a style that didn't just exist. You know, this was created. It feels like this was something that has always been, but really it hasn't always been this way. The reality is that James Student Howard is part of a tradition that comes out of new age and orchestral filmmaking. It's like a very specific subset of filmmaking. It's like, it's not big Elmer Bernstein. It's not big Bernard Herrmann. It's not, you know, the Gothic orchestral stuff. It's not Ennio Morricone. It's not Spaghetti Western, although that plays a big part in this score. Really, I listen to this score and I think a lot of, of James Horner. I was just going to suggest him. Yeah, yeah I, th I think because I think that what James Horner codified was a, a kind of new age landscape of drones and soundscapes and textures with a soloist on top of it. And, you know, that's also kind of a Morricone thing. You have the whistling or you have the guitar or you have the, the vocalist in Morricone's work. But James Newton Howard is really, really good at, at creating the metaphor of storytelling inside his music where you have ensemble and you have soloist, you have the, the hero and you have the Greek chorus. When you're listening to these tracks, even with your eyes closed, if you're watching the movie, if you closed your eyes, you could be like, okay, I know when the hero is alone on screen. I know when we're here, I, I can tell when we're seeing landscape because he has a really good sense that basically of how to write film music with soloists. And I'm thinking of Defiance, which is my favorite of his scores with, with Joshua Bell as the soloist. And it's a really, really great technique for filmmaking because when you hear that soloist, you think of your hero. And when you hear the, the ensemble, you think of the background, the backdrop that this, our hero is existing in. So, you know, I think it would be easy for me to be like, to feel like this is a little bit paint by numbers or a little generic, but the more I think about it, the more I realize that this is a very specific tradition in film scoring that comes from a very specific set of people. And I think it's just a credit to him and a credit to his success that it feels like it's always existed, frankly, you know? So, you know, that's kind of my reading on this. I think that there are elements of it that I absolutely love. I mean, I really do love the soloistic textures. I love the guitar playing. I love, um, you know, there's some kind of interesting harmonic stuff going on. If I'm being totally honest, there are other people that I would have liked to have scored, you know, done this score. Like I think Terrence Blanchard would have done a, a really cool job with this movie because of his relationship to that kind of Americana sound, that complexity of kind of pastoral music. But I'm also thinking of uh, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, like, their assassination of Jesse James by the Count Robert Ford or Hell or High Water, 
those are the inheritors of the Western tradition musically that I think that they're the most interesting to me. The, this score is, is, is good, but it's a little bit um, tamer than that. And, you know, I, I, I particularly like, like the other stuff. So. I think the word tame is, is kind of <laughs> nose for how I, how I um, feel, just how this film gives me two things that you just, just said, Louie, that you were talking about when we're talking about Mank, like building the team. And so maybe these producers didn't quite build the right team for this movie. And it might've included this score. I feel like this movie, I was looking so forward to this movie because I read that I didn't see any of the previews. I said, okay, we have like a true grit, like movie. I love Westerns. True Grit was great. I'll watch another version of True Grit, fine. And it was very underwhelming to me in a lot of ways, just felt very overwritten. And I felt like every choice was the most obvious one. Like they were making the most obvious choice. And it got a nom for cinematography. So I was really excited to see like a big, cool Western and just see how music and the nature interplay, like 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 in, Morricone and all these great westerns and I felt so underwhelmed by the whole movie and I felt the score was like of course you're gonna do like these western themes it's just like you have a movie like I felt that the movie Nomadland was more of a western than this movie like I felt more more at more in the wilderness in Nomadland than than news of the world when they're on the frontier, you know? And so, and then you have, and the Nomad Land score is really cool and interesting. And then you have like a Western, like There Will Be Blood with the iconic Johnny Greenwood that is like space age score where you're not doing obvious things, but you're still creating emotions that connect with what's happening on, on the screen. And I just feel like this score, while there are some beautiful moments and melodies like you, like you're mentioning in this interesting play between uh, ambient and western it just it just felt felt very um emblematic of some of the failings of the movie in general and it might have been um whereas you have a movie with such precise uh choices made from the top down with with fincher and ross and and the people that they hired to do the all that work you see how that movie is built and you see how all of those choices reflect in its final version with the score and everything working together. And whereas you see have this movie, which could be a great movie, some of these things are out of, are out of joint. And so um, I just feel like that's uh, reflected in, in some of the score choices. I think I liked the movie a little better than Mick, but I will say that as I was watching it, my first thought was this feels like a movie, not from the sixties or the fifties. It feels like a movie from the nineties there was something very CAA about this movie. Like let's line up, you know, let's get Michael Ovitz to line up an enormous star and big cinematography. And it's funny because it was directed by Paul Greengrass, who was Mr. Handheld Camera and Mr. You know, you are there cinema verite. And this is probably the most four square traditional thing, unless I'm forgetting something in his earth. He even did a born movie that felt like handheld cameras and, you know, you are there, you know, and this was not that at all. Um, that said, I had a reasonably good time with what I watched, but 
the score is of a piece with that. I'm so glad that you brought up Louis James Horner. Uh, I thought of Thomas Newman who won for American Beauty. He's, if there's a tradition of score from the nineties on, that's what this is. And of course, I, be, me being me, I had to look up James, uh, James Newton Howard because I'm like, I feel like this guy's been around. And sure enough, this is his ninth Oscar nomination. Most of them for score. Two of them were for song, but the rest are all for score. He's got a bit of a mini Susan Lucci streak going here. He's never won. And I don't, I, I'll be surprised if he wins this year. But I mean, talk about, again, I want to keep drawing this contrast. Talk about the un-Minari uh, and the un-Emile Mossari, you know, where I was just making the point that Mossari is clearly picking things that are, maybe because he's only at that stage in his young career, picking things that are smaller budget, you know, more indie. James Newton Howard, it's My Best Friend's Wedding. It's The Village. It's Michael Clayton, the George Clooney movie. Like it's that level of stuff. He's got also, budget. Also the, the, I think the first two, if not all three of the Nolan Batman movies. Yes, uh, I think that's right. Because, and, you know, he was working with Zimmer, which, you know, that's a whole other podcast. Like the relationship between the two, like, and how that happened. Um, I just think it, yeah, you're right. He has a, a lot of titles and they're really, really different. And he's really, really like a, like a, like a craft guy. Like he mm -hmm. is really plugged in to the craft and the tradition. And he like knows his stuff, which is why, you know, I think it, I think it's also like, and I know this is sounding silly, but like there are movies that just like they're, primary function I think is just to sound like movies <laughs> like the, yeah. I think the main goal of the music is like okay God, just make it sound like a movie please you know and <laughs> and I think a lot of composers like we know what that is and it depends on what producers you're working with but you know I do not think that Minari sounds like a movie in like a great way Agreed. I do not think that you know Terrence Blanchard work sounds like a movie it's like really sounds like concert music to me a lot of the time and Mank sounds like a movie but in a very in a way that is like whoa like that movie so I just I I know that it's I'm kind of using the term in the definition but I think there's a lot of movies that get made where just the primary function of the music is like please dear god just make it sound like a movie yeah. you know and, yeah and, and and all of the, you look at this filmography the fugitive I mean you hire this guy to give you what is expected and it will be polished and professional. And like you, Louis, I, there are several times and while watching the movie where I like, Oh, that's quite nice. You know, like I, I, he's a, it's evocative. It's setting the scene, totally. but it's, it's also on the nose, you know, like, well, it's a Western, of course, there's going to be banjo right here. You know, it's both predictable and, you know, accomplished in the most bland sense of the word accomplished. So all of the movies that we're talking about, except for Pixar, because Pixar is its own beast, but they're kind right. of auteur situations, right? Like the filmmakers were people with unique visions and, and the means to get it done themselves mm -hmm. or, or like the budgets were tight enough that they had a level of control. I wouldn't be surprised if the news of the world slipped outside of that realm where it really truly is a studio movie where like a lot of people had a lot of creative say and a lot of stakeholders 
And it, it, we could just be talking about that, you know, like that, that could be a big part of why this sounds the way it sounds. And I don't think it's a knock on, on the composer. I just think it, we might be talking about two really different processes. My last thought on, on you know, this is a studio movie. Mm-hmm. If there was one thing I loved while watching News of the World. I was like, it's the pandemic year and I'm watching a movie that looks like it could have come out in 1995. Yeah, it's nice. With the superstar. I was like, I'm glad one of these got made in 2020. Because <laughs> man, I wasn't watching a whole lot of this in 2020. Well, you know, that I, I liked. And and I feel like only Tom Hanks could have pulled it off, right? Yeah. Like, and that's why. But you know, it was really great to see Brad Pitt as the executive producer on Mirari because like this studio, it's nice to see that people who would be like the studio people starting to pay more attention to the smaller stuff. And I feel like someone like Brad Pitt's taste as a producer, like that would be a, a cool episode also because he's he's made some really, really interesting. Good choices. Good yeah. choices. Like no, he, he, is, he, is, he has gotten some very thorny stuff produced. It's impressive actually. It's, it's probably his greatest contribution to film, honestly. Yeah. Not and, to take and, anything away from him. I've liked him in certain movies. I've not liked him in other movies, but as a producer, his, his taste is almost unerring. It's, it's, it's impressive. It really is. And I think that you're like the year that this industry has had, I think it's really important to call out the fact that some movies are made really differently than others. And yeah. the music oftentimes reflects that in a really audible way. Yeah. Gentlemen, before we wrap it up, any film scores that did not make this list that you think should be recognized? Yeah. You know, I think that looking at this list, there's some really great composers. It's uh, all men, uh, which is a problem in our industry and looks like mostly white men. Um, And so there are just two composers that I just wanted to shout out for doing really great work. Tamar Kali, fantastic composer, scored the film Shirley, which is really cool music, really interesting stuff. Isabel Waller-Bridge. Isabel Waller-Bridge's work on Emma, I thought was really, really interesting. You know, I think that the awards stuff is so difficult because how do you pin down a small group of people for so many projects that happened over the year, but those were uh, two composers making really great work that I just wanted to, to call out. Appreciate you doing so, Louis. Thanks guys, as always, love talking yeah, about thank you. Yeah, likewise, thank you. That's a wrap on our coverage of the Oscar nominees. I'd love to hear what you thought. If you'd like to contact me directly, send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Positive ratings help us reach new listeners. And new listeners, check out our website, blowtheline.biz. This is our 85th episode. At some point, I'm sure we've talked about something you've seen. 
you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. And a special thanks to Louis Weeks for his help and guidance with the music edits. Enjoy the Academy Awards and good luck with your Oscar pools. We'll pick up again with new episodes of Below the Line on the other side of the ceremony. Be safe out there.